0: The views and opinions expressed by contributors on the Spoon River Gothic podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the position of the host. Material heard on the Spoon River Gothic podcast is intended for adult listeners. This podcast deals with mature topics that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide. take your call please leave a message after the tone
1: It was that darkest hour, just 4 a.m. when Drake Smith arrived at the Wirico gas station. The morning began as it always did, flipping on the lights, checking out the cash register, and preparing the day's bank deposit before venturing back out into the frigid January air. He checked the fuel tanks and unpadlocked the dispensers, and only the hum of the pumps broke the silence. In the cold, quiet morning, Drake could hear the slightest sound echo through the neighborhood, along with the rumble of the box truck that slowly rolled up South Main on a sleek sheet of ice. It slid into the station, parking before a newspaper vending machine that sat outside beside a payphone. Drake gave one of those friendly nods that always accompanies a slight grin in small towns like these, along with a comment on the weather, a frigid 20 degrees, with a negative 8 degree wind chill and wind gusts up to 17 miles per hour. As Drake hurried back inside the toasty station to warm his bones and put on a pot of coffee, the Journal Star delivery guy braved the wind to stack the day's headlines in the machine. And just a block behind the station, Joseph Ferguson of Cuba, Illinois, had left his house early to putter his way south through Canton on First Avenue. The way he had almost religiously for two years, with his arm tossing those same headlines out the driver's side window The newspaper flipped and glided through the air from elm to oak, the news landing on lawns occasionally slapping a front door, where early risers stepped out of their houses in slippers to read the headline across the top of the page. Allies gearing up to hit Iraq, Bush personally authorizes retaliation against Hussein. And as Joseph crossed a set of tracks running east and west through the heart of town, passing a milk plant on his left. He cruised by an old, two-story Victorian on his right, siding flaked of its coat of white paint, grayed by the harsh Midwestern climate. The home sat right next to the tracks, and though Joseph did not deliver a paper to that address, 365 South First Avenue, he did take notice of a bright yellow porch lamp illuminated on the west side of the building, a lamp that was never usually on when he made his deliveries. Joseph tossed the paper up and over the roof with a practiced hookshot into the frozen lawn of the home two doors down, and thought nothing more of it as he carried about his day, as the hues of the sun smoldered just beyond the horizon. Inside the two-story home beside the tracks, a woman named Linda Huggins awoke in one of the building's four apartments and put on her own pot of coffee. As she blew on the steam, and sipped the warm Colombian roast. She thought of a sound she had heard late the previous evening, a slight commotion from the apartment below where a young woman lived with her three-year-old daughter. Linda recalled hearing what sounded like noises from the little girl, but she shrugged it off taking another sip before beginning her day. Meanwhile across town, Sarah Hines had shut off her alarm and crawled quietly out of bed, letting her husband David sleep in a while longer. She took a shower, got ready for work, and when David arose to his own alarm, the two had a soft-spoken chat over coffee so as to not awake their two young children. David's chaotic mind was already tightly wound, throttled up with the daily news as he prepared for the workday, and Sarah, knowing she was notoriously late for work, Rhodes in horrible condition, left David to his thoughts just before seven for a 40-mile drive northeast along the Illinois River. Pauline Newcomb, owner of the Trackside Victorian on South First, stirred from her own bed. Pauline and her late husband had owned the house since 44, a home converted to four apartments in the 50s, and after his death, put into a trust through the National Bank of Canton. Trust Officer David Haynes handled the property. And he dealt with any problem a tenant might have, a leaky pipe, a gas leak, batteries and smoke detectors needing replaced, a leaky roof damaged in the tornado of 75. The boiler was known to pop and make all sorts of racket and occasionally go out, resulting in said gas leaks, and on occasion, when working or rather working too well. The boiler tended to heat the home to the point where a window needed cracking, even in the dead of winter. David collected the rent, which went into the trust, and all Pauline needed to pay was her phone bill, for which she planned to write out a check for when she was done with her early morning hair appointment. In the other upstairs apartment, Clark Hogan quietly slipped past his friend Jim who was asleep on the couch. Jim had been staying with Clark for a few weeks and they'd shared a few beers the night before. Jim worked second shift, so Clark let him sleep. Clark carefully went down the back steps, noticing nothing unusual, nothing out of place, and ventured off for another early morning shift at Jarvis Welding. A little after eight, Hazel Brown, longtime employee of the National Bank of Canton, arrived at the mid-century building, a block off the town's historic square. At 8.15, Hazel greeted David Haynes, who had already dropped his and Sarah's two children off at the babysitter's on his way. Back at First Avenue, Pauline opened her front door, and a strong wind tore it from her grip. And as she saw the road coated in ice, glistening in the rising sun, decided not to push her luck and test her fate. She stepped back inside the warmth of the boiler heat, called and canceled her appointment. A wise choice, seeing the cars out the window, slipping and sliding in the street. One of those cars, a 91 Ford Festiva, belonging to Cindy Mouse pulling up out front. Cindy had just finished cleaning the First Presbyterian Church in Canton that morning. As she got her cleaning supplies out of the hatchback, She stopped in the wind to customarily take in the side of the house. She had long admired the Victorian by the tracks. Its ornate fixtures long vanished with time. Cindy was met at the front porch by Pauline, now wrapped tightly in a house rope. After acknowledging the fierce chill, Cindy carried the trash out the back door to the garbage cans in the rear. On the south side of the garage, she tossed the trash in the empty cans and made her way back again pausing to take in the aging beauty of the home. At the top of the stairs, just inside the back door, Pauline watched Cindy. Taking notice of Pauline, Cindy tore her gaze from the house and went back inside to clean the apartment. Beginning in the rear bedroom, Cindy moved on to the bathroom and the kitchen, working her way toward the front of Pauline's home, a fourth the size it once was, yet still too large to tidy up on her own. It was not unusual to hear sounds from the other apartments, as Cindy cleaned, such as televisions and phones ringing. Still today, Cindy noticed nothing other than the place was relatively warm, as she worked up a sweat. But then again, Pauline always kept the heat cranked in the winter. However, Cindy found it odd, eerie one might say, as when she opened the living room closet to get the vacuum cleaner, a chill ran down her spine. Ice cold as though she had just stepped outside into the Sub-Zero wind chill. After finishing around 9.15, Cindy told Pauline she'd be back the following week. Sitting in the rear bedroom filling out that check for the telephone company, Pauline dropped her pen. She walked Cindy to the front porch, keeping a tight grip on the aluminum door as she opened it. And as Cindy made her way to her Ford with her supplies, Pauline locked the deadbolt and returned to paying those pesky bills. And as Cindy popped open the hatchback, a small mustard yellow pickup truck with a white camper shell pulled into the driveway, struggling up the icy slope. She then watched as an unknown man with dark hair and a mustache stepped out in a pair of dark pants, who what must have been a pricey suede coat. The man in the coat, David Haynes. Trust officer from the National Bank of Canton, property manager of the Trackside Victoria. He arrived between 9:15 and 9:20 on the brisk Wednesday morning, January 13th, 1993. But why? Why had David arrived in that wind? The cold, so early in the day. To check a frozen pipe? Flapping shingles, a leaky stove, certainly not a faulty boiler. With his head on a swivel, eyes wide, seemingly unburdened by the frigid gale, David had something else on his mind. He rushed through the snow to the south side door beneath the buzzing porch lamp, and he rang the bell while trying to peer around the side of the curtain in the window. But he saw nothing and heard no stirring nor bell ringing inside. So David knocked and pounded loudly on the door, yet got no response. the thoughts in his head grew more excited, racing faster, more tumultuous than ever, and the never-ending stream of internal dialogue now spun wildly as his inner world had turned to an outward shout, a pure wailing panic, Donna, Donna. So what was the source of David's panic that morning? And who was Donna? To bang on this door wildly, tearing at his hair in dread. Was it money? Was it love? Was it revenge? Yes, this is a story of motive. This is also a story of man. Rather, a story of man, mother, and child. A story of the good and decent, the wicked, and the fog that lies between. As judge and jury, you will learn of a woman who pursued a simple, yet prosperous, life, an existence that would support her little one and provide her safety, comfort, and maybe a touch of happiness. Though you will hear plenty of man and motivation, you will ultimately hear a tale of mother and child, the tangled web of circumstance and consequence in which they found themselves entrapped and endangered. And the tentacles of toxicity that would become their tragic and untimely demise. This story is as much of a why-do-it as a whodunit, life and death, and how they collide, of innocence and guilt, and the comic tragedy that is to live, which begs to question the entire concept of victimhood that lurks in such fog that can be life. We ask who was guilty, guilty of murder, who was not, and who got away with it, but mostly we ask why. Why should we have absolute faith in blind justice? After all, is justice really blind? I have a feeling justice tends to peek out from behind its veil from time to time. With 2020 vision, I might add. Training its crosshairs upon its own targets. Its own motives. Money. Love. Revenge. Or whatever. There's no doubt words are tricky critters. A combination of letters that manifest meaning. And oftentimes deep meaning which accompanies complex emotion. To make things trickier, change one letter and you have a whole new word, with entire new meaning, and names. What is in a name, after all? And what is the origin of a name? And more intriguing, how can those headwaters influence one's fate? Our investigation will try to answer some of those questions. For others, as mentioned, You'll be the judge and jury. I'm Corey Zimmerman, and this is Spoon River Cut.
0: Spoon River Gothic is a production of Lonebird Media in association with CZ Studio. The show is produced by August Olson. Editing, directing, and producing by Corey Zimmerman. Audio mastering and engineering by E. Mastered. Research is done by Anne-Marie Cannon, Chelsea Mesa, and me, Jinra Illustrisimo. Spoon River Gothic is written and hosted by Corey Zimmerman. You can follow the show at czstudio.works and read the blog at spoonrivergothic.com. Show some love by leaving us a rating or review on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for the next episode as we dive deeper into the Donald Bull case. Thank you for listening. This is Spoon River Gothic, Narrative of a Double Homicide.